as you all know, yesterday, or you probably know by now, yesterday, um, armed forces from Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, one of the things that, that I've heard several times on the news by commentators, which kind of disturbs me, is, is the comment that, well, you know, what does this have to do with us? You know, a lot of Americans can't even find Ukraine on a map um, or on a globe. Uh, but I, don't, I can't account for that or the poor education system that doesn't even teach geography anymore. But, um, but I do know that, that we have a lot of connections to Ukraine in this church. Um, you may remember that several years ago, Arena Villastrago uh, and I and Mitchell Moore led a team to Warsaw, Poland, and that was the beginning of an exciting relationship that's continued now for about three years, four years. Um, and we initially went to, you know, to, to be with a, a Ukrainian refugee congregation in, in Warsaw. These were people who had been displaced by the original campaign that Vladimir Putin sent into into eastern Ukraine uh, when he took Crimea and, and, and uh, also um, instigated a lot of insurgency in, uh, in uh, what is now a, a totally embattled region in eastern Ukraine. But we met, um, we, we met Ukrainian folks who were now making their, their home in Poland. They were worshiping at, at uh, a Baptist church, very uh, ironically very close to the Warsaw Ghetto or where that had been at the time and um, of course it was a wonderful experience wonderful trip we also made other friends there uh, some of those relationships have blossomed into now uh, a, a seminary and pastoral training program that is a, a really exciting venture that we're into um, we are it's a school that is connecting our reform tradition with actually a Pentecostal seminary there but you know kind of in Poland all Protestants kind of have to stick together because there aren't many of them um, but but they're you know now uh, training uh, training pastors. They, the the great thing about this program is international, and so they um, they speak English. That's the that's the language of the of the program and of the ministry, which I love because that's the easiest language for me to learn. Um, so I'll, I'll uh, you know so so we can actually communicate with them. Um, but it's connected. It's all kinds of connections that, uh, that we have with that group, and and uh, now. Uh, we even have plans to connect this group with the Outreach Foundation, which is a longtime Presbyterian and mission partner with this church. And we're connecting them with the Outreach Foundation for the sake of that training, but also that connects them to another group, a group of Iranian church planters that the Outreach Foundation works with that we support through another channel. And what we're trying to do is bring some of these things together um, as a matter of fact, this is even connecting up with some of the things that we're doing in Mexico. Antonio Alvarez, who is our, uh, one of our mission partners through a group called the Antioch Partners, is now teaching a course in this Polish seminary for the benefit of some Latin American uh, students who are now connecting and learning the Reformed theology through this, through this little program in Poland. So it really has become an international thing. That being said, that, that's, that's kind of our connection to Poland. And as a matter of fact, in three weeks, Arena uh, Aaron Villastrago, Morgan, and I are actually scheduled to go to Warsaw and connect with those friends. Well, you know, we're, we are carefully watching what's going on right now. Um, 
and you know, Irina and I'll be talking a little bit after this. We're trying to figure out some things, but um, but it is one of those times where where you know the Lord is is allowing some things to happen and maybe even doing some things that we just we just do not understand. Um, but I will say that you know for me I've always because I've always loved geography I've always been able to find Ukraine on a map. But because of these relationships and because of our connection through the body of Christ, we not only know the name Ukraine or the name Poland or Warsaw, we know, we know people there. Um, you know, we, we know uh, Peter. We know Mikhail. We know Brooke and Dariush and, you know, many others that we're connecting with. Um, you know, Arena has many, many friends uh, in, in Poland. My, my good friend Tom Boone from the Outreach Foundation, before he joined the Outreach Foundation, was, uh, was a teacher in Lithuania. They taught at a reform seminary in Lithuania. You want to talk about weird connections? He was the interim pastor in my former church after I came here, before he went to the Outreach Foundation. So the Lord's clearly bringing some things together. Um, and I think that's why, you know, because things are co coming together, I think that's you know, that, that's why it's important that the devil disrupt these sorts of things. I don't think that he's got his eye only on our little project, but, but clearly things are starting to happen in Eastern Europe that, that the enemy does not like. And, um, and as, you know, as, we are, as we're seeing what's happening, this is, you know, this is affecting not only the global economy. Um, for those of, us, this kid, those of us who were kids in the 80s, it's starting to feel a little bit like the Cold War again. And as a matter of fact, I was talking to Bo last night who was who has been paying very close attention to this because as a as an 18 year old you know he he and his he and his classmates his friends are coming out of the covid war just in time for a new cold war and you know this this is really doing a number on a lot of kids that age uh, even Bo was even last asking last night having just several weeks ago sent in his selective service card you know, am I ever going to get drafted? And, you know, and I'm, of course, saying, oh, of course not. It's never going to go that far. When in the back of my mind, I'm praying, Lord, don't ever let it go that far. You know, we're in a situation where, and I don't mean to you know, sound like a doom and gloom speaker, but, but you've heard me often say that um, you know, there's the old, the old expression that you've all heard that, uh, that blood is thicker than water. But the truth is that's actually a, a misunderstanding of the original Puritan expression. The original Puritan expression is that the blood of the cross is thicker than the water of the womb, which actually reverses the meaning of that, which is to say that our connection through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit is actually stronger than our biological connection even to our, even to our, our birth or, or, or DNA families. And so when I mention Peter and uh, Mikael and, and Darius and Brooke and, and those people in Poland, you know, they are brothers and sisters in Christ and they are as close to me as my own brother, as you all are, as we all are. And so while I know that there are lots of people right now who think this is only happening on the other side of the world and it doesn't matter, we're going to feel it matter. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I got a little frustrated you know, with the news and everything last night because, it, because I heard posturing on de several different channels about this is this administration's fault, this is this administration's fault, 
you know, this is, you know, this is really going to hurt poll numbers. This is really going to help poll numbers. All that, and, that, and I thought to myself, you know, the people in Ukraine don't give a rip about our politics. What they care about is that Russian T-72s have rolled across their borders and, and a lot of Ukrainians are about to die. A lot of Russians are about to die. We don't know about the polls. Uh, talking to my friend Tom Boone, the guy from the Outreach Foundation a minute ago, the people in the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, are, are terrified. You know, they think that they're next. And that's a, you know, that's a, a scary thing for them. And, uh, you know, I, I had a very Pollyannish view of, of the world for a while, you know, hoping and glad that my son and that my daughter would not grow up in a Cold War world like, you know, like we did, like I did. Um, but, you know, that, that tension is, is feeling very familiar. Remember last week when I said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme? We're in a rhyming moment. And, you know, it is, it is in that sense that we have, to, we have to return to Scripture and remember that, indeed, our God is sovereign and that our God is the one who holds the heaven and the earth in the palm of his hand. And we just have to trust that Jesus really meant what he said when he, when he told the disciples, and remember, I am with you even until the end of the age. Um, I don't, I, I'm not going down the road of saying this is the end of the age, but I am saying this, it is the end of an era. It's the end, uh, I believe it's the end of, of a normal state that we've gotten used to and I know that's for sure for people who are closer to us even than some blood relatives because of the uni their unity in the body of Christ. And so, you know, I just hope that we will pray um, for our, you know, for the Christians in Ukraine, for the, for the non-Christians in Ukraine, for our brothers and sisters in Warsaw. You know, one of the things that they are, they're bracing for in, in Ukraine is they are going to get a flood of refugees. I don't know, I don't know how many of y'all saw the traffic coming out of Kiev last night, but it, I mean, it looked like, it looked like 35 going to Austin on game day. Um, it's, it is, it is scary. And when you think about, you know, that when you think about who those people are, and you start to think not, you think, you don't think big picture, you start to think more granularly about individuals, and you think, what would it be like if that was me, if that was my family, then it starts to, we start to feel a little bit more of the weight of it. And, um, and so I'm just going to ask you all to, to, be praying for, to be praying for the people in Poland, to be praying for the people in Ukraine. Uh, one, other, uh, one other name I forgot to mention, Luke Chiba. Um, another connection, Luke is the son of my former associate uh, pastor in, in South Carolina. He, he just felt like rather than go to regular college in the U.S., he wanted to go study in Europe, and he got accepted to a university in Lodz in Poland. And he's there now, so you, uh, Luke, this kid that I've grown, watched grow up is in Poland right now. And, you know, so I'm, you know, we all, uh, if you don't have friends there, you do have friends of friends there. And so please, you know, let's, let's, not, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that's all the way over there, it doesn't affect us. Um, you know, I think we're going to find soon that it affects us economically. It's definitely going to affect us politically. It's going, to have, it's going to be like ripples of a pond, and we're going to feel it. But before, before we feel it economically, our brothers and sisters are going to feel it in a very, very real way. And we, 
I hope that we're starting to feel those spiritual ripples right now. Um, so, so before we actually start talking about Jericho, let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning because we need your help. We need your, your comfort, we need your truth, we need your guidance. Lord, we, we wish that we could claim those words that it is well with my soul right now, but the sea billows are rolling and the enemy is buffeting and, and, and it is hard to imagine why certain things happen in our world and to the people we love. But Lord, we just ask you to, today to help us to help us to feel your truth, to help us feel your comfort, to help us feel your strength. And Lord, we pray especially for the people that we know in Poland, those that we know by name, those who are associated with them. We pray for the, the students at the seminary, for the faculty. We pray for our, our friends in the Ukrainian Refugee Church and the Polish Baptist Church as well, for the Reformed Church in Poland. Lord, we pray for the people in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, the church planters there with City Church who are friends of ours. Lord, we pray with our, for our, our outreach partners. And we pray, Lord, for the people of Ukraine. We just ask, O oh Lord, that you, would, that you would cool hearts and that you would settle minds and that you would stick your hand between, between those who seek to do evil and those who will suffer for it. Lord, we just, we just claim the promise of Scripture that when, we do, that when we don't know what to pray for and we don't know what to say, that your Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Lord, help us to pray as you would have us to pray for Ukraine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I know it seems abrupt, but we're going to change the channel and talk about Joshua. And who knows, maybe there are some connections that we'll even draw here. We're in Joshua chapter 5, the very end of Joshua chapter 5. And um, you know, as, I was, as I was going through this passage, one of the things that, that kind of hit me, especially given the context of, of what we're going through right now as a church, as a, as a, <coughs> excuse me, as a country, and... Um, and just as individuals, is that we all have battles that we're fighting, challenges that we have to deal with, don't we? Anybody here not involved in some kind of battle or struggle? I mean, health, family, financial, whatever. Uh, anybody not? Okay, good. So, so I, I was safe in that assumption. Um, you know, whatever that challenge is, you know, we take those words, you know, it is well with our souls, and we hope that that is the case. We pray. That's, in many ways, that's an aspirational hymn. Maybe we don't feel it right now, but maybe in our soul, on a soul level, we do have some sense of quiet, some sense of peace. But, you know, the, um, the thing that, that I think about when I think about this is that, is, you know, as we read this story of Joshua, as we fight the battles that we have to fight as we, as we rise to the challenges, even as we seize the opportunities that, we, that God puts before us, there are, there are some things we need to remember. First of all, is that God does have a promised future for us. You know, so the promise is there, just like the promised land was there. And then we also remember, though, that, that to claim the promises of God, sometimes there are going to be battles. There's going to be a fight. So there's the promised land, but there's a Jericho. And so we, all, you know, so we know there's the promise, 
We know there's the battle. The question is, how do we fight that battle? And, and sort of one of the, one of the themes that I've, I've picked up from the story of the Battle of Jericho is this, that the promise is out there, the battle is before us. What matters is how do we fight it? Do we fight it our way or do we fight it the Lord's way? And this is a theme that's going to carry us through not only this week but next week. You know, are we going to fight that battle our way or are we going to do it God's way? Are we going to trust that the Lord actually carries this battle before us? So we're in chapter 5, beginning in 13, just the very last part of this chapter. And um, I'm going to hustle through this because I, I took up some time on the front end. But how many of you all have, uh, have to get psyched up before you do something hard? How many of you, how many of you have to like, have like a pregame before you have a big conversation? Like you have to kind of tell yourself, this is what I'm going to say. Or, or you say, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to go in there and I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to this, you know, I'm going to talk to this, whoever it is, this lawyer, this doctor, and I'm going to say, these are the, I'm going to talk to that loan officer, whatever, and I'm going to say, this is what it is. You know, I remember, you know, how, you know, we'd always have the pregame talks before, before a football game and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you, it's funny, uh, I don't, you know, you all know what Preacher's Alley is, don't you? Preacher's Alley is that little, that little uh, hallway that goes from the hallway across from the bride's room into the sanctuary. We call it Preacher's Alley because that's where the preachers come in. And there is a, there's a little plaque above it um, that says, Sir, we would see Jesus, which is a, a quote from the Gospels, uh, from the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and it's funny because every time, it doesn't matter who it is, every time people walk in, every time the pastors walk in, we all go up and we all kind of, slap that plaque, kind of like Notre Dame coming out of the tunnel, you know, whenever they come out onto the field, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, okay, that's part of our pregame, you know, it's like, but you didn't do it, go, go back and do it, um, you know, but, but, you know, golfers, football players, baseball players are especially superstitious, I mean, every, you know, everybody's got their pregame, you know, I've got my, my pre-preaching routines, you know, I, I get my sermon printed out, I get my, you know, I go over it a certain number of times, I go in and I, I check the Check to make sure that the hydraulic lift in the pulpit is actually set so that I'm not like preaching like a puppet like this. You know, all this, because you can't, if you try to do that thing during, I mean, it's too loud. I couldn't, I couldn't step in and do it and y'all not notice it. It's not like a whisper drive or anything like that. Um, but, you know, I've got these pre-game routines that I have to go through. And part of that is prayer, part of that is, you know, is preparation, study, all those sorts of things. Well, what we see at the end of chapter 5, I think, is a, just sort of a window into Joshua's pre-game routine. His pre-battle routine. What was Joshua doing? Joshua went out to be by himself to gather his thoughts. Now, one of the things I love about this story and the whole story of Joshua is that there is so much evidence of the gospel before the gospel in this, in this passage. What did we often see Jesus doing, usually before something big came along? What would he, he would go off to be by himself to be with the Lord. I mean, to just go and pray and just find his quiet. Well, here, let's read uh, verses uh, 13 through 15 in chapter 5 together. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said to him, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. So, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that, that 
they have come across the Jordan River to the first fortress, the first city that they will encounter, and that's Jericho. They're actually camped just right above Jericho in this little place called Gilgal, somewhere, somewhere just to the northeast of Jericho where they came across the river. They are, they are within shouting distance. They're, you know, they can see the city. The city can see them. There are scouts everywhere. But Joshua's got his pregame routine. Joshua is an experienced field commander. He is an experienced warrior. He has been you know, through 40 years of battles. You know, somebody asked last night in the Bible study, how old was Joshua at this point? I'm guessing probably somewhere around 60, 61, 62. Remember, he, you know, he was around 20 or so when they came out of Egypt. They'd been wandering in the, wandering in the wilderness you know, for 40 years. So, I mean, I think pro probably between 60 and 70, somewhere in there. But he's, he's got his routine. He knows you know, before a battle, he's got to go. He's got to get himself psyched up. So he goes out. He needs to be alone. He's going to think through the battle plan. How are we going to position our forces? How are we going to move in on Jericho? What is the plan here? And he goes out to be, you know, just to be with God, just to, just to pray, to think, to find that silence. I loved it a few years ago when I was watching, a, um, I was watching uh, the Olympics. It was one of the Summer Olympics, and, and it had all these young swimmers Uh, or divers, I think they were divers, just sitting on the bench getting ready to, to dive. And they all had headphones on. And, you know, and like, so one of the reporters, I said, well, what do you listen to as you're getting ready? He said, oh, I, you know, I listen, to, I listen to country music, or I listen to rock and roll, or I listen to classical, or I listen to rap. And finally came to this one guy, says, what do you listen to before you, before you dive? He says, nothing, these are silence, si <laughs> silent and noise-canceling headphones. It's like, you know, that kid didn't do anything. He just says, I just, I just need to drown out everything else and just and just figure out what's going on. Well, I think that's what Joshua just needed to go and find that space, and he did. And, you know, and, and here's what I love about this story. You know, you go, I mean, you, you know, we do it all the time. I need to go and find a quiet place where I can be with the Lord. And what does he do? He goes, he tries to find a place, quiet place where he can be with the Lord, and then bam, this guy shows up. It's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't mean that literally. <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, you know, we, you know when we say, you know, I know the Lord's going to show up in this. Well, he showed up. You know, it's this, this incredible figure that simply identified as the commander of the army of the Lord. The commander of the army of the Lord shows up. Now, who is this? Who is this? Well, in, the, in, in theology, in, in, uh, in the academic study of theology, whenever God makes an appearance... We call it an epiphany. That's literally what the name, you know, we, we, you know, when a, you know, an epiphany is, you know, that time when, when something divine happens. It's like a, a, all of a sudden something, you, you know, something supernatural breaks into our world. Specifically, we would call it a theophany if God shows up. But there's another term that Christian, that Christian theology is even drilled into this situation, and that is the word Christophany. And there's a long line of Christian tradition and academic understanding that, that this figure is not just an angel of the Lord. He isn't identified as an angel, is he? It's just it's the commander of the army of the Lord. And, and so we're kind of left asking this question. Who is he? Who is this person? And what, what people who have studied this and prayed over it and... and, and Asked questions have, have come to the conclusion, as at least a, a great many, not definitively, but a great many, have suggested that, 
that this may very well have been a pre-incarnation appearance of the second person of the Trinity, who we call Jesus Christ. So, of course, you know, Joshua goes into the goes into the wilderness, goes out into the, goes up to be alone with God, and he meets the other person who seems to go to be alone with God. You know, now, I talk about the gospel before the gospel. This isn't the only time this happens in the Old Testament. There are other times where, where a mysterious figure appears, and it's not necessarily an angel, but they aren't sure, but there's certain evidence to point to the fact that it may not be. First of all, what, what does he do? He doesn't identify himself um, as an angel. doesn't give his name or anything like that. But, um, but what does Joshua do as soon as he sees him? He falls on his face and worships him. And, and what does the figure say? No, 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 don't worship me. I'm just an angel. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Nothing. He allows himself to be worshipped. I mean, a, a legitimate angel would not have allowed that. At least that's what it seems. So, you know, this is somebody special. He's not just, he's not just a high-ranking officer in the army of the Lord. He is the commander of the army of the Lord. Who is the commander of the army of the Lord? The commander is the Lord. You know, we see, we see him presented in this way in the book of Revelation. But we also see, we also see versions of this vision, other places in the Old Testament, other places where, where God shows up in a, in a, in a for, sort of human physical form. We see it in the book of Daniel, late in the book of Daniel, in the vision of the heavenly throne room, when this one like the Son of Man appears. But we see that before that in Daniel. Where do we see, where, where does this mysterious figure show up again in the book of Daniel? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and one like the sun, one like a son of man appears with them, and did not, you know, and, and his robes did not catch on fire. Or, you know, you know, are there other incidents possibly? There's one that goes all the way back to to Abraham. Do you remember the figure? Actually, we'll be talking about this guy in, in church this Sunday. Um, Abraham gets into a fight with. Uh, with several of the local kings, and, and then there's one king who comes to him just sort of out of nowhere. His name's Melchizedek, and he's the king of Salem, which is interesting in and of itself, and he's just regarded as this mysterious figure. Comes up again in, in Hebrews, shows up in the Psalms. Who is Melchizedek? We don't know really much about him, but for some reason, Abraham worships him, tithes to him. He's the, one, the first tithe. Who, who is this guy? Well, first of all, what does, you know, who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek means righteous king. But what else does Mel, you know, what else do we learn about Melchizedek? Well, he's the king of Salem. Yeah, and what, what does Salem, well, Salem is what? Jerusalem. But what does Salem mean? Does it sound like any other Hebrew word you've ever heard? Shalom. Yeah, it's a, it's a cognate of the word shalom, which means peace. So he's the king of peace. The Prince of Peace, you know, I mean, you see, you see there's some connections. But what we see here in the, in the command of the army of the Lord is, you know, with a fair degree of confidence, this figure who comes as, you know, not just bringing the Word of God, but what? As the Word of God. 
Not, not in the same, not, not totally enfleshed as Jesus was, but he's coming as the word of God, the embodied word of God. And he's coming to speak to Joshua. And it's fascinating. He says, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. And I think that's fascinating. But I've never, that's not something I've really understood for a long time. You know, I, was, I always thought that it was about the ground. That there's, there's something on the ground that's holy, but that's not really what it's about. It's about it's about, you know, the shoes. Why would, you know, what does this have to do with holiness? Well, you know, again, my friend Masaki, whose son is in, um, uh, whose son is in Poland, he's Japanese, and whenever you would walk into their home, uh, you, you know, they, they had all the shoes by the door, and you, you're supposed to take off your shoes when you walk in. They were always too polite to say anything to me because, you know, I, the big old dumb Westerner, would come in and say, hey, what's going on? I'd go and sit down, cross my legs, sit on the, and I'd realize, oh my gosh, I'm still wearing my shoes. I'd have to kind of scurry back over, take them off because I, I realized how much disrespect I was showing them. But, you know, why do you, you, know, why do you take, it off, take off your shoes? Well, in that culture, it's a, it's a sign of respect. But why, why the shoes? Well, what, where are your shoes most of the time? In the dirt, on the ground, getting dirty? When we hear, you know, when we hear take off your shoes in this context, it means put off that which is unclean. Take off that which is unholy. You're on holy ground, so take off that which is unholy. You're in the presence of the Holy One. It's not about the ground. It's about our unholiness. Think about the, think about the angels that attend to the Lord God all the time. Isaiah describes them, they've got six wings. What do they do with those wings? With two, they cover their eyes, so that so that their eyes are not so their minds are not constantly blown by the by the unshielded presence of God. With two, they fly, which is what you use wings for, I suppose. But what's the other set of wings for? They cover their feet with them, because again, it represents the unholiness in the presence of a holy God. And so, another clue that this is not just some some messenger. This is somebody special. Now, I love the question. You know, here, here is Joshua. Again, if you look at where Joshua is, he's not far from Jericho. And we're, we know that there were spies from Jericho, scouts from Jericho, watching their every move. I'm sure there, were, there may have been, well, there may not in this incident, but there, there, it, it is certainly reasonable to believe that while Joshua was out walking around, that, that some of his other subcommanders were not happy about that. We were mighty close to enemy territory. Actually, ever since we crossed the Jordan, we've been in enemy territory. So, so what, are you, what are we doing here? What, why are you going off by yourself? He says, That's, this is my pregame. So he goes off by himself. But then this mysterious figure with a drawn sword shows up. And so it's natural for him to ask, who are you? And I love it. He says, are you for us or are you for our enemy? And he gives the most unhelpful answer, no. Well, which? <laughs> no, you are with, not with them or you're not with us. Which, which is it? No. And what does he say? He says, he says, I am, he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Isn't that the way we always want to treat God? Are you on my side or are you on their side? What is God's answer? Neither. Whose side is God's on, God on? I'm on my side. I'm not here to work your purposes out. I'm here to work my purposes out. I'm not here to work the purposes out of the people of Jericho. I'm here to work out my purposes. I'm, yes, you know, I'm, I am here with you. You are my covenant people. But, but I'm here to work out my purposes. How often do we pray 
Lord, I ask you to bless this thing that I'm doing. I ask you to bless this job I'm undertaking. I ask you to bless this project in which I'm involved. When we should be praying, Lord, help me to do what you're blessing. Not, not, not Lord, bless my stuff, but Lord, help me to get involved in the stuff that you're blessing. Help me to follow you. Lord, don't, don't, make me, don't let me drag you along with me. Lord, help me to follow you. And so, so God is, has come, you know, the commander of the army of the Lord has come on jo- to Joshua the night before his battle, before the, you know, one of the greatest battles of his life. And then it's interesting that the conversation just ends right there. Now, I don't think the conversation ended. I think that from this point on, what the, the rest of the conversation is communicated in what Joshua communicates to the people of Israel. And so God, you know, God or the commander of the army of the Lord, possibly Christ himself is coming, you know, Yeshua coming to Joshua, coming and saying, this is what you're going to do. And what is it that that the commander of the army of the Lord tells Joshua he's going to do? Look at verses 6, 1 through through 7. Now, I love this. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. So again, the scouts have been watching. They know they're coming. They are prepared. They have battened down the hatches. The people of Jericho are ready for battle. And so what does God say to them? Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its mighty men of valor. So we've already had the victory monuments built, right? The the standing stones. We've already had the victory celebration, the victory feast, Passover. And now what do we have from God? The victory declaration. We won! I mean, it's like everybody's like, what have we won? Oh, you mean the battle we're about to fight? You've already won it? That's what God is telling you. You have already won. We have already won. And so it's interesting, it's interesting to me. We, we always call this the battle, of, the battle of Jericho. But it appears to me that God's already fought the battle of Jericho. So what are the people involved with? The victory celebration. They're there to claim the city. The city that God's already won for, from them. Listen to this. Listen to the battle plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really sound like a game plan. That doesn't sound like a battle plan. What does it sound like the Lord's doing? Sounds to me like He's planning a parade. Maybe a victory parade? I mean, come on. How confident do you have to be to plan the victory parade before the battle? Well, apparently you have to be as confident as the God who made heaven and earth. Because he knows that this is going to happen. He says to Joshua, your victory is already won. And so for, seven, for six days, seven days, you're going to march a victory lap 
around Jericho to prove that I am God. Now, you know, we, we tend to think in different ways about this. Again, I don't know that I've ever heard this passage preached about or taught about where somebody, including me, because I've taught about this a lot and I've done this a lot, where somebody, including me, has, has just sort of made the comment, isn't this a crazy battle plan? I mean, can't you imagine that when Joshua laid out this plan to the people, all the people said, that's nuts. That's crazy. We can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, I've been telling people that for years, that the people of Israel, when they heard the battle plan, were like, oh, this is crazy. How can we do that? Well, I guess we'll do it. Find that for me in the text. Find for me one word of doubt. Find for me one word of rebuttal or mocking or scoffing from the Israelites about God's plan. And you see, I was, I've been reading this in, in, I think, in a very jaundiced 21st century or 20th century way for so long that I missed what we talked about last week. I missed the faithfulness of this generation. What did we talk about last week? What did this group do last week? They crossed the Jordan River, and they did what else? They built the memorial stones, held a Passover feast, but come on, what else did they do? All the men of the nation were circumcised before the battle. I mean, that's, that's not something you want to... I mean, it's the, you, don't, you don't have major surgery. You don't, you don't go and have major surgery the day or three days before you're getting ready to run a marathon, do you? No. But what did that say? What do we say that that meant? What did that say that it showed? What, what did that say? What do we say it showed about them? That they were committed. Unlike the previous generation that was always complaining, already always mocking, always, always grumbling, this generation says, "That's the plan." Then. We've already been, we were willing to be circumcised for this. We're, we're willing to go with the plan. And I look, look back at, again at, um, at what Joshua says, or what, what it says about Joshua at the beginning, or at the end of chapter 5. End of chapter 5, it says this. Um, I love this one line. Um, let's see, verses 13 through 15. Ah. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Four words. And Joshua did so. Then Joshua came and gave the plan to the people. And the people did so. How clear is Joshua's obedience? How clear is the people's obedience? How clear is their trust in God? If you can find it, they're grumbling. I mean, again, we, every time the people grumbled in the book of Numbers and in the wilderness, we heard about it. I mean, it stank up the nostrils of God. Here, the people said, we trust God. We trust you. We are in no shape for a battle, so we like this plan a lot better, actually. But if God's going to fight this battle, we're going to trust him. And the people did so. Now, I'm adding that part, but, but you see what started with Joshua is reflected here. You know, I, I always wonder, you know, you know I, I've said it so many times in funerals. People always want to say that, you know, when my, you know, when my dad went to heaven, when my mom went to heaven, I know that when she, when she stepped into heaven, 
when he stepped into heaven, you know, that the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. I think, you know, what a, what a benediction, what a, what a beatitude to have, you know, when you step into the presence of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is similar to me. How, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, if all of heaven looked upon you, looked upon me, and said, you know, when it came to God, he did so. She did so. What a faithful servant of the Lord. Simple obedience. And that's what the people did. They simply obeyed what God told them to do. Now, what's fascinating is that we can imagine that the people up on the walls of Jericho, the defenders of the city, they thought this was ridiculous. Why are you marching around our city? Why are you, why are you going around? Why do you, why do you keep, you know, why are you making this racket? It's interesting, too. If you look at Joshua's instructions to the people, clearly there's, there was some stuff that God told him that, that Joshua, you know, that, that were not in the initial set of instructions given there. Because if you look, it says that Joshua told them to be silent. Joshua 6.10, you shall not shout or make, any vo- or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So we know for sure that there were 40,000 soldiers, 40,000 seasoned Hebrew soldiers from the, from the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and, and, uh, uh, and, and the half tribe of Manasseh, the vanguard, you know, they were, they were the armed vanguard of the, of the people. We know there were 40,000 soldiers in front of the ark. Who knows how many in reserve? Thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, myriads. There's a lot of people. But I love it. Joshua says, nobody say anything. Not a peep. And Morgan and I had the opportunity to go to the Masters several times while we were living in Augusta. And there it is. I'll tell you, it is ominous to be sitting around a green with literally 10,000 people, 18th hole or something like that. I mean, there 20,000 within 500 yards of you. And to be able to hear the click of a putter on a golf ball. I mean, just the air is heavy with the silence, with the anticipation. Can you imagine tens of thousands walking around the city of Jericho, and all you hear is the... and the horn of the... and the, and the sound of the trumpets. I mean, you want to talk about psyching you out? And then on the last day, what do they do? On the last day, Joshua says... Um, On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. I mean, this is it's amazing. What, you know, what, you know, what are they doing? All of a sudden, the priests 
sound the horns, and the people shout. What are they doing? What are they shouting? Are they cursing Jericho? Are they cursing the people of Jericho? No, what are they doing? They're praising God. The victory parade turned into a worship service. And the walls came a-tumbling down. You, you, know the, you know where it says, uh, what the Bible says, that, um, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? You know, the, we always think, uh, oh, well, you know, we always think about the devil attacking us. What do we see here? The gates of Jericho did not prevail against the people of God because of God. They were attacking. But, they, you know, but the worship, the word of God expressed their trust in God. I mean, because is it, does it matter what they said? No. I mean, I, well, actually, it probably does matter what they said. But, but what they were doing was they were worshiping God. They were shouting. They were declaring with a word that God is king, that God is Lord, that God is, that, that the Lord is God. They, you know, I think they maybe all said together the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. And the walls came tumbling down. The people of God declaring the truth of God in the face of the enemy, and the walls come tumbling down. Oh, if we still had that faith. If we still had that faith, I think we'd still have that power. The problem is, when we declare the Lord, we qualify it, when we, you know, we, we water it down. Do we have the confidence to trust God and to declare, you know, declare Him even in the face of the enemy? You know, I love this. You know, again, I asked you earlier, you know, we know we've got a promise. God's promise is things, and, and we can claim that promise, but to, fight that, to claim that promise, we've got to fight some battles. Are we going to do it in God's way? What, you know, too often we want to fight the battle our way, which is what? Using our strength, using our cleverness, using our resources. Using, we want to do it our way. How did they fight the battle? With obedience and the word of the Lord. And the walls came tumbling down. I think there is a lot for us to learn in that. Yes, I do historically believe that this really happened. I believe it happened in just this way. But I also believe that there is a teachable lesson for us. That, that our trust in the Lord is our most powerful resource. Now, looking on again, there was one more instruction. Joshua said in verse 17, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Do you remember Rahab? She hid the spies, feared, feared the Lord, hid the spies and asked for the mercy of God and his people. Well, who was Rahab? Rahab was not just a, a fortunate soul, a bit character. She was to be the great-grandmother of David and one of the ancestors of Jesus. And again, to make some connections, how was she saved? How was it known where, where she would be, you know, that, that she would be saved and, and that she should be spared? Well, remember, where was her house located in, in Jericho? Yeah, it was part of the wall. You know, she, you know, it was a house of ill repute. It was a, 
Um, you know, people didn't care. I mean, obviously the people of Jericho didn't care if she had a battering ram come through her living room. That's why they allow those people to build their homes on the wall. So you've got a thick layer of stone, and then you've got a thick layer of people before you get to the rich people who are on the inner side of the city. And so, so they were there. But what happened? The walls of Jericho came tumbling down except for this one house. This one house. I mean, th again, they, they told Rahab, put all your people, put all your family in your house. I mean, if, if you know the house is going to collapse, do you bring people into your house? That's, again, this is, this is an act of faith on her part. And then hang a red ribbon outside of the window so we know which house not to enter and to harm. And we remember the parallels between the red ribbon and the blood over the door. The blood of the lamb over the door at Passover. There's so many parallels. I mean, just in this story, we've seen not only, you know, not only the parallel with the Passover, the red ribbon over the, or hanging out the window and the blood over the door, but we've also seen you know, Joshua having his Sinai moment, his, his burning bush moment. Take off your feet for you're upon holy ground. And now we see it with Rahab. And we see this, this figure who just, a Gentile who gave her her faith, her trust to the people of God is now saved from destruction. Why? Because she feared the Lord. She didn't have a full knowledge of God yet. She hadn't been to Sunday school. She hadn't been to confirmation class yet. But she trusted that God was real. And interestingly, again, think about the parallels, gospel before the gospel. Rahab trusted that God was real and asked Joshua to save her. I mean... There's a pretty good formula for us now. If you believe God is real, then you need to ask Jesus to save you. Yeshua. So all these connections are here. She hung the ribbon outside of the door and she was saved and then the walls came tumbling down. Now this last order is very disturbing to people. At the end, Joshua says, And the city and all that, was it, that is within it will be devoted to destruction. And this is a hard passage for us to hear, and it should be a hard passage to hear. Because what does it literally mean? God is telling them to go in and to kill every man, woman, and child within the city of Jericho. And any treasure you find, do not keep it for yourself, but that is, a, that is an offering for the Lord. You're going to keep it, you're going to save it for the Lord. You don't, there's going to be no looting, no personal gain from this. It's all for the Lord. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But this, you know, this, this command to, to wipe out the entire population of Jericho, I cannot explain this away in any way that makes it sound easy, that makes it sound okay, because because I'm a sinner too. It should be terrifying to us. But we know that the Canaanites, the people of Jericho, the, the Amorites, the Amalekites, we do know that they were people under a curse. And we see the evidences of that through the blasphemies that they committed, slavery, cult prostitution, child sacrifice. We saw, saw all that stuff in Numbers. They were so abominable that God said that they must be wiped from the face of the earth. And God knew about them things that we don't even know. And not just the adults who were culpable, but everyone. 
And this, was, this isn't a new command. God has said this since Deuteronomy. He said this since, you know, since Numbers. Do not mix with these people. Do not let them live because if you do, you're going to be corrupted. It's like the, the old adage, the old preacher adage. You know, if, you, if, you make a, if you make brownies, you know, if, I, if I told you I made a plate of brownies for the class today, but I, I ran a little short on brownie mix, so I just threw in, I, I, just, I just went in, I, I found some cow manure, and I just mixed it in, just kind of bulk it up a little bit. Just a little bit, just a pinch, though. Just enough to kind of fluff it up a little. How many of you would eat those brownies? No, because a little bit of manure messes up the whole mix. And God said, you've got to wipe them out 100%, or it's going to corrupt us for generations. It's going to corrupt you for generations. And he was right because they didn't, and it did. And, you know, we don't know the full history of the Canaanites. We do know that there's extra-biblical evidence that they were into some really bad stuff. But we do know that God set this command forward. But what did God not do? God did not make this command to wipe them out a general principle for all time. One of the great crimes of the people of God in the future from this point on was to, was to come across any people that were not them and to exercise the same principle, that God wants us to wipe them out. No, no, God did not say that. God said, you're going to wipe out these people at this particular time for this particular purpose. What do we do? We tend to generalize it. and we tend to I mean, I hate to say it, but there have been so many times in Christian history, and Christian history has a bad reputation in the minds of a lot of non-Christians because of this, and in the minds of many Christians, because throughout history, kings and chieftains and emperors have used incidents like this to commit genocide. The Jews in Europe have paid for this for centuries. Vladimir Putin is not a Christian. Um, but I'm sure he's using this principle. You know, better, better to wipe out our enemies than to, than to be infected by them. This is not a general principle. This is a, this is a specific command for a specific time. And people say, well, I, I still, I'm still not comfortable with that. Good! Nowhere in this story does, does God say you should be comfortable with this. If anything, this should make us uncomfortable and help us understand just how seriously God takes sin. You know, I, you know who I think really caught this, caught the gist of this, was uh, the, the Ukrainian foreign minister, uh, ambassador to the Ukraine last night. One of the things he said in his speech, I mean, just looking straight across the room to the, to the, uh, to the Russian ambassador, he said, he says, there is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell. On the, on the floor of the UN Security Council. It's like, good for him. But, you know, but the fact is, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's justice on sinners should terrify us. You know, you know, I'm sure, you know who probably was not upset about the destruction of Jericho? All the people upon whose bones Jericho was built. All the people that the people of Jericho wiped out before them. All the children that they sacrificed before Moloch. God was exacting justice on them, for them, and against his own name. 
And so it should make us uncomfortable. But I want to go back again to, you know, to, the, to the more inspiring parts of this story. You know, God has a promise for us out there. But we know that there are going to be challenges in claiming that promise. And the question is, are we going to fight God's way or are we going to fight our way? You know, uh, Alex Solorio introduced me to a great phrase once. I hope you all know Alex. If you don't, he's our new assistant pastor for Unit Diversity Ministry. Alex said once, he said, you know, we are not walking, when, we're, when we think about the cross, we're not walking to victory. We're walking from victory. We're walking from the victory of the cross. When we worship, what are we doing? We are standing around Jericho shouting, praising God, declaring that his victory is already won. Not that he's going to win, that it, not that he might help us, but he's already won. The hard thing is looking at what's going on in a place like Ukraine right now. Can we declare that God's already won with faith? It's hard, but we have to. One day we might see how that's going to happen. But we do have to trust that he's already won. And the proof of that is that on the third day he rose again from the dead and now sitteth on the right hand of God. So as we continue to study the book, uh, the, the book of Joshua and the story of Jericho, we, keep, we, we are continually challenged to understand that God, not just at Jericho, but, but throughout, has already said, I've already won the battle. But are you going to meet the challenge the way that I've told you to meet it? Are you going to go in with the confidence and with, the faith, with faith in God, or are you going to rely on your own resources, on your battle plans, on your tactics? It's a good challenge for all of us. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to ask y'all to hold on for one more second, and then uh, and Ross, I'm going to ask you to turn off the camera at that point. But um, let me pray for us, gracious heavenly Father. As we come before you today, we thank you that you are um, you are with us, that you've already won the victories in our lives, and that and that you are calling us, you're moving us forward to claim the prize that you have for us. But Lord, we also know that. Whenever we meet challenges, we have to fight your way, not our way, not the way of pride or greed or, or cunning or strength, but the way of faith. Lord, help us to, help us to go into to whatever challenge we face with love, even if that love seems suicidal, even if that love seems at times um, sacrificial, even if it seems confusing. Help us to, to be like Christ who called us to love our enemies, to pray for them, even those who persecute you. Help us, Lord, to trust you that your victory is won and that you will give this, give this promise to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.